0: I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we are going to start uh, our kind of our dive into this chapter in this study, really essentially breaking the chapter, not exactly in half, but pretty close to kind of breaking it in half. So today I want to draw your attention to the first 14 verses. We certainly won't cover all of these verses this morning, but that is going to be the focal point for our study um, for the next few weeks, for sure, as we dive into this, what is a larger section that we began to talk about when we started studying 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 8. But let's just get the, the the passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, let's get it framed up in our minds, we'll read it together, and then we'll kind of begin our, our look at it. In verse 1, am I not free, the Apostle Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is not for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, if nothing else is clear in just the reading of these particular verses, it's, it should be clear that the Apostle Paul is addressing this matter of rights. And as you may recall, if you were here last week, we took quite a bit of time to deal with this matter or this conception of rights that is uniquely American in its contour. That we, as Americans, have a sense of rights. We have rights that are memorialized in our founding documents. We referred to, for example, some key statements from the Declaration of Independence that speak of rights that are divinely bestowed and they are permanent. They can't just be taken away by whim because they're inalienable. And these rights are the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness We looked at that and we talked about how our our tendency when it comes to thinking about our rights, particularly as citizens of the United States and as those who at some point in time were probably introduced to founding documents and founding principles, and even as we consider how our society has evolved over time, there is a tremendous emphasis just in the general cultural ethos, just in the the atmosphere of our culture, there's a tremendous emphasis on rights, people claiming their rights, demanding their rights, being willing to fight for their rights, marshalling campaigns to secure their rights, establishing political movements to to lobby for the advancement of their rights. We live in a rights-driven culture for sure whether those are legitimate rights that are being claimed, whether those are rights that are according to the founding principles or the founding intent of our founding fathers and the founding documents, that's a different discussion. But nevertheless, the, the air that we breathe societally in this country has this tenor of it that is centered on rights. And in fact, you probably, if you're honest with yourself have a sense of that because you bristle when you feel like your rights are potentially being violated or infringed upon after all i'm an american right i mean there's a sense of that that we just kind of we kind of grow up in and and i spent so much time on that because it's important for us particularly in this day and time that we're living in and quite possibly directionally where this could end up going, we don't know where all this is going to go, that we as God's people need to have a biblical understanding of rights that guides and informs us, so that we don't bring into our life in the body of Christ, so that we don't bring into our interactions with fellow believers, and so that we don't exercise our sense of rights in the public arena, A a, a form of demand or insistence upon things that are not in accord with the biblical model, with biblical precept. More importantly, they're not in accord with the life of Christ in us. So that our public testimony and our engagement with one another in the body of Christ are important for us to consider and to understand when we think about Rights that we indeed do possess as God's people. Rights and liberties and freedoms that are ours because we have indeed and truly, if we are in Christ, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. And we have, quite certainly, as we abide in Christ and walk in the Spirit, we are then freed from the power of sin over us. These are true freedoms that enable us to walk in a freedom that is unlike anything else. But we're called to not exercise those liberties, those freedoms in such a way that brings reproach on the name of Christ or that brings harm to our fellow believers in some way. And this has been the focus of the Apostle Paul in chapter 8, where he's dealing with what seems to be Corinthian believers who are exercising their liberties in such a way that is causing offense to fellow believers. in the The context of that chapter is dealing with this practice of partaking of food that has been sacrificed or offered up to idols and that practice being so pervasive in Corinth that it provoked certain believers who were sort of weak in conscience in this area and who wanted to stay far away from anything remotely resembling their former manner of life, anything remotely resembling the the pervasive pagan idolatry that was surrounding them. And so to see another believer who might partake of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol was a, provo- a provocation to their conscience. And there were those that were having no concern about that offense. And so this, this chapter continues on here in chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul is continuing to deal with this larger matter of, of how we are to think about and properly exercise or potentially refrain from exercising our rights, our liberties, our Christian freedoms. And as I said, this particular chapter, and even the verses I just read of the chapter, it's clear that rights is a dominant theme here. This term, exousia, a freedom, or a power, or an authority, or a state of control, this idea of right, it's used six times in this Corinthian letter. Five of which you find right here in this chapter. The other one is in the prior chapter, which is dealing with the same issue. You find it in chapter 8, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul cautions the Corinthians, but take care that this right of yours, this, this right for you to freely eat food sacrificed to idols because an idol really isn't anything, he would say, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, And then, of course, chapter 8 serves as the context for what we now begin to study in chapter 9. And, of course, in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is chiding the Corinthians for their self-centered abuse in the exercise of their rights and their liberties in Christ without even any consideration for their public testimony or the offenses and harm that they might be causing their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But here, in chapter 9, Paul turns his focus to himself. Chapter 8, he's focusing on the Corinthians and their exercise of their rights, and he's cautioning and chiding and rebuking them for their abuses in that regard. But here, he turns and begins to examine, or I should say, speak to his rights and how he approaches this matter. See that in verses 1 and 2? He starts by saying, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Clearly, the focus now is turning to Paul himself. You see, again, this focus on rights when he turns the, the corner on, in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Verse 6, it's only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make use of my right in the gospel. So we're going to see in chapter 9 this extensive focus of the Apostle Paul on his rights. You want to talk about rights? Let's talk about rights. How about we talk about my rights, he says. Now this sets up for us what is kind of the broad outline of this entire chapter that we're going to be using that is sort of implicated in the title of the study. I've chosen Rights Obtained, Defended, and Surrendered as the title of our study. Which, by the way, Bob, I've got to make a correction because that's different than what I gave you last week. Slightly, one word difference. But we're titling this larger study, Rights Obtained, Defended, and Surrendered. And we're going to break the study down into two big points, two big points of emphasis. The first being rights obtained and defended. That's what we're going to see in these first 14 verses. The focus in the first 14 verses are on Paul's rights that he has obtained and that he defends. And then the second part of this chapter that we'll get to at some point in the future are how he surrenders his rights. His rights surrendered, you might say, is point number two. That's verses 15 to 27. And obviously there's a lot of sub-point material that we'll look at underneath all of this. But in thinking about this, this first principle, Paul's focus on his rights... Turn with me, if you will, just for a moment to Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42, Jesus uses some of the most familiar phrases in all of Scripture to teach some profoundly important principles about judging others. When I read this, you're going to be like, yep, familiar with that? Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, that's part of the, the common vernacular in the culture, whether you're a believer or not. I mean, these, this is the kind of text that this is. This is. It's, it's filled with these phrases that are, that are rather iconic in nature, whether you understand Scripture, study Scripture, believe Scripture or not. It begins, verse 37, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Ever heard of that one? And he goes on, Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? In verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher. Phrase upon phrase upon phrase of just familiar language that, that even secular people uh, have probably stated or heard stated at some point in their lives. But this, this little interlude here in our study of the teachings of Christ in Luke chapter 6, in my mind, it paints a really helpful picture, an insightful picture of what can happen... Easily amongst fellow believers in the church, particularly in matters pertaining to Christian liberty or the rights that we possess in Christ. Those rights that have been truly given to us as we have truly been freed from the penalty and the power of sin. But it's in the exercise of these rights that we can fall into some of these failures and points of sin that Jesus is teaching about here in Luke chapter 6. This is what was happening essentially in Corinth, and we saw that in chapter 8. There were some Corinthian believers whose consciences were provoked by seeing other believers in the church partaking of meat sacrificed to idols. It made them feel like that they were being tainted Or that the testimony of their fellow believers were being affected. Or that we should not be associated with such pagan practice. It it just provoked their conscience. And as we said in our prior study, this provocation of conscience was not just the only concern. But that what is also of concern is that when you're weak and you're vulnerable and you see other people engaging in something that their conscience is not provoked by, your weakness can become an avenue for further temptation and you succumbing to further excesses and sinfulness, which is what you see happening time and time again, even in the pages of Scripture. We looked at that. Oftentimes, in this particular context, the accompanying sin was sexual immorality. Because of the nature of temple worship and, and what took place when the idol uh, worship practices and the food being sacrificed to idols was taking place. And because it was such a licentious culture in general, it was not just that there was an offense because someone was eating a morsel of meat that was sacrificed to idols. But it, it, was, it was basically uh, provoking the conscience of a weak brother in a weak moment and thereby furthering their weakness and potentially contributing to their further vulnerability that could be a contributing factor to further avenues of sin and falling, particularly in their their new faith. So you have these weaker conscience individuals around this particular matter of eating food sacrificed to idols. So we might say that those are the people with the speck in their eye. Because the fact of the matter is, is that, and, and, and the Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, indeed, meat sacrificed to idols is doesn't matter. It doesn't harm you. It doesn't convict you. Idols are not anything. I mean, he affirms the reality, the truth, that food that's been sacrificed to idols is not somehow tainted by some spiritual presence or demonic presence or anything like that, some of the beliefs that were circling in that, in that day and time. And so, if I'm someone who is provoked by something that really isn't truthfully something, I have a speck in my eye. Possibly I have something there that needs to be addressed. I'm not... I'm not innocent. I can't stay in that place forever. I can't operate with blind spots to what is true and just persist in my sort of lack of faith and unbelief or, or lack of maturity. I can't, I can't stay weak. I can't stay immature. It's, it's a speck. At the same time, there were those who had no problem eating this meat or this food that was sacrificed to idols. Their consciences weren't bothered by it. It was common practice. You go to a wedding feast you go to the marketplace, there's meat sacrificed to idols. What, do you want me to become a vegan? No way. I'm a steak man, right? No problem. They had no issues with eating food sacrificed to idols. But it appears from the way the Apostle Paul goes after this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that they were lording this freedom over those who were weaker in conscience. That they were partaking of this freedom or this liberty in a manner that was unduly or sinfully hurtful to these weaker conscienced believers who have the speck. And we could call these people the ones with the logs, the gigantic logs in their eyes in this lording over of this liberty because they have an arrogant lack of love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And he points that out. He says right there at the beginning of chapter 8, love builds up Knowledge puffs up. You have this knowledge knowing that that this food isn't really anything and idols aren't really anything. It doesn't really matter. But the way that you're lording it over in a disingenuous and discourteous and dismissive way of your weaker brothers and sisters is a vast, massive, open demonstration of your lack of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a gigantic log in your eye. And here... In chapter 9, Paul also exemplifies the principle that we see in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, where he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now the apostle Paul says, You, have, you are under the illusion that you have elevated yourself above your teacher. You somehow think that your exercise of your rights is of such a kind, or you have been given such a prerogative in this regard, that you can actually move in a direction in exceeding that of your teacher. And he's calling them back to say, no, you're not above your teacher. The objective of a disciple is to be like their teacher. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, let's talk about what I'm like in this regard. Again, we mentioned this maybe last week or week before, this particular discussion about liberties and preferring one another and and demonstrating sacrificial love toward one another, it really carries all the way through 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, and he kind of wraps up this particular subject matter with this statement about following his example as he follows the example of Christ. And so in chapter 9, what we're going to see is him really unpack the real character or nature of this example, this, this example that he's calling them to follow, the, this, this principle that they need to be reminded of, that you, when you are fully trained, will be like your teacher. The objective is for you to not somehow deceive yourself and that you've just suddenly surpassed your teacher that you have some kind of knowledge and some kind of capacity for exercising your liberties, that even the one who, who brought the message of the gospel to you that, that enabled you to have these liberties in the first place, that, that that person doesn't even exercise. Now, our first point, again, rights obtained and defended, is where we're going to focus our time for the next couple of weeks. You see this in the first 14 verses. So it's a fairly lengthy section. It'll take us a little bit of time to work through it. But note, before we kind of start looking at these verses here, note verse 3. He says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. This is my defense. So right away we see the Apostle Paul putting forward judicial terminology. That's, That's what characterizes his statements in this section it's it's legal or judicial terms that he 's sort of setting in the context here. He uses this term defense, which is ap- apologia, which we get the term apologetics, which is a speech of defense so this is this is his apologetic, if you will, regarding this matter of rights. We know that apologetics is the study and practice of giving answers for the reasonableness of of truth, the reasonableness of the Christian faith. From 1 Peter chapter 3, I think it's helpful for us to kind of understand when the Apostle Paul is employing this idea of giving a defense, I want to make sure we understand again a biblical model for that. It's not characterized by defensiveness. You see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, He says, Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, an apology, an apologetic, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Notice it doesn't say, do it with aggression and insistence right it's gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be god's will than for doing evil so again think of this principle of apologetics or giving a defense Even Peter is casting it into the context of being willing to suffer for doing right. To be willing to sacrifice. Not to make your case so that everyone then agrees with you. So that it paves the way for you to exercise your rights and your liberties. And to have everybody support what you think needs to happen in any given situation. Again... Peter is just holding up the character of Christ in the believer, even in the context of being slandered and reviled. But if someone has cause to ask you for a reason for the hope that is within you, be ready. Be ready to give that defense, but with gentleness and respect. So you have this language, this legal language of giving a defense. You also have this this term examine. This is my defense to those who would examine me, he says anachronio, I think is how you say it, to conduct a judicial hearing is what it means, or to hear a case, or to question a witness, this examination, this term for examine. So right here we see that the the nature of this discussion in chapter 9 is about a defense. The Apostle Paul is defending something. Now some would argue that this verse 3 is really pointing us back to the first two verses that that he is he is defending his apostolic status because you see there he says am not am i not free am i not an apostle have i not seen jesus our lord in other words he's making these statements to sort of affirm his apostolic authority, his apostolic status. And so this defense that he's talking about in verse 3 is just a summation of of that defense of his apostolic authority. So it points backwards. Others would argue, other scholars and commentators would argue, that no, this is verse 3 is an introduction of his defense that's coming after. Namely, His defense of the right for those who work in service of the gospel full time in the life of the church should be compensated for their work. And that's what that whole section is about. And oftentimes you'll you'll see um, sermons or teachings that center the instruction on 1 Corinthians chapter 9 on that primary subject. Now, it is about that. But I think that a more full-orbed understanding of of what this defense is all about is is to see verse 3 as kind of a hinge verse, kind of the the door swings, the door door of understanding this whole whole chapter kind of swings on this particular verse, and namely that, that Paul is not merely defending his status as an apostle, though he is doing that, and he's not merely defending the right of true spiritual leaders to be compensated if they've devoted their entire lives to this ministry of the gospel within the life of the church, though he is doing that as well. But but a more full-orbed view, I think, is to see that Paul is defending the example that he is setting for the Corinthians. An example of one who... Of all people, possess rights as an apostle, as one who's seen Christ, as one who came to Corinth and they're the testimony of his effectiveness as an apostle. If anyone has rights, he has rights, but, but he's defending this example that he set, these, these what you might even call inalienable rights that he has, that he was willing to, to happily surrender them for the sake of the gospel. And that was the offense that the Corinthians felt. They they couldn't imagine such a scenario in which you would have these rights and yet so happily and frequently and persistently just surrender them for the sake of the gospel. Now think about that for a second. Think about the nature of being offended by someone who's not willing to insist on their rights. Think about the the idea of holding up someone as a noble example to follow because they characteristically are joyful in surrendering their rights for something eternal. And that's, that's what the offense was. That's what he's defending against here. He is defending his apostolic authority. He is defending the right for true spiritual leaders who are laboring in the work of ministry to receive appropriate compensation for their labors. But he's more importantly defending the example that he set as one who has these rights, but was willing to give them up if it meant the advancement of the gospel in that particular setting. So again, this is about rights, it's about rights obtained, about rights defended, but ultimately it's about rights surrendered. And by the way, when we think of a concept such as freedom or liberty, is not that more the essence of freedom or liberty, the freedom or liberty to give up what you are rightfully entitled to? Isn't that more of an essential understanding of that concept than someone who is constantly craving and fighting for and seeking to grab hold of and protect their rights, what they're entitled to? That to me is a picture of bondage, not freedom. And so this is sort of the this is sort of the theological principle that the Apostle Paul is running through this instruction. It, it is an, a, an essential character quality of the life of Christ in every believer that he is pressing upon in the context of these rights discussions in the life of the church of Corinth that really sprung up as a concern about food sacrifice to idols. It's very easy when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and go, yeah, food sacrifice to idols, that really, what does that have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us when you think about the theological thrust of what the Apostle Paul is driving us toward here in this section. So let's look, first of all, for a moment at what, what Paul's claim of his rights is based upon. What, what is he basing all of this on? And by the way, just a, a side note before we talk about that for a moment. Uh, we are going to be taking a number of side trails in this study. Okay? Okay? surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is, is that we do, I do want to do uh, some, spend some time talking about um, the, the the nature of true apostolic authority, because we are going to find our, ourselves in First Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 very soon, and we talk about um, um, spiritual gifts, and there are um, there's some good background material that this will provide for us when we get to that point because there's a lot of important discussion we'll talk about around the nature of spiritual gifts in the life of the church. And and one of those is is the question about authority. Who Who has authority in the life of the church? And what is that authority characterized by? And many would argue in our day and time that authority is granted to a new apostolic uh, gift in the life, of the, the life of the church. So I want to kind of unpack some of that. We're also going to be talking more in depth about uh, this principle of compensation for pastors because I want to make sure that we, we deal carefully and, and hopefully helpfully with that, those principles and then as we go through the rest of the chapter, there's a number of sort of important theological matters that we'll probably spend a little bit of time uh, discussing as we go through this. But for now, let's look at just this, this, this claim. What's the basis? What's, what's Paul's claim of his own rights based upon? And, and the first thing, it's kind of we've already alluded to it a couple of times here, but it's on the basis of, of validated apostolic authority. Not just, not just the name apostle that attaches to him, The the, the technical title, but it's validated apostolic authority. It's proven, it's been tested, it's been seen, it's been witnessed. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So even though Paul is mounting his own defense here, he's doing it by a very clever rhetorical turning of the tables by becoming himself the inquisitor. Notice how he does that. So he's mounting a defense by saying, I have some questions for you. It's a great strategy, by the way. When you're thinking about talking to people in an an apologetic or witnessing kind of scenario, a great strategy for effective witness or effective apologetics is to be a very good question asker. Ask them questions. Here's the reality. And this is kind of the the basis of the Apostle Paul when he's talking to these Corinthians. The basis is, I don't have to defend the existence of God. The fact that we're having this conversation is its defense. You can't even reason without the existence of God. God. Why don't you answer some questions I have about logic and reason and rationality and rational thought? I mean, you just turn the table on it. It's just a little side sort of presuppositional apologetics primer. Um, but this is what he does. He, he basically turns the rhetorical tables on him. Starts asking them questions. The first one is, am I not free? He speaks to this matter of freedom, which is, which is the principle that the Corinthians were majoring on, their freedom to partake of this food. They should not be constrained. Of course, this food doesn't mean anything, and it doesn't. So why should I constrain myself? Why should I withhold this from me, this nourishment from me? Why should I withhold this delicacy from me? Why should I withhold this this Part of general fellowship that takes place in public places and at public events. You're telling me that I should have to restrain myself from such a thing? The Apostle Paul says, Well, well let me talk about my freedom for a second. Am I not free? Me of all people. Like, in other words, Corinthians, do you not understand that whatever conceptions you are operating in about freedom from the power of sin and freedom from the penalty of sin that enables you to walk into a market where they're selling food sacrificed to idols and, and not be tainted by that because you understand that he who the sun sets free is free indeed. If I eat food sacrificed to idols, no one can snatch me out of the Lord's hands. Do you understand that I'm the one that brought that saving message to you? That you don't know freedom at all apart from the Lord's kindness in bringing me and this message of saving faith in Christ to you that grants to you this freedom that you're now lording over someone else? One commentator describes this statement about the Apostle Paul and his freedom and where he's going directionally with it like this. He says, In the previous verse, in verse 13 of chapter 8, Paul declared that he would rather give up eating meat than let his eating practices cause a brother to fall. Some of his auditors may well have thought some freedom. Such a response would also be consistent with the extreme individualism so often found in modern Western thinking. This is why I did what I did last week. But the freedom to which Christ has liberated us is not a freedom to do as we please, but a freedom to serve God and others in the newness and power of the Spirit. A freedom to do as we ought. It is a freedom to live out the life of Christ in a community that glorifies God as it follows the sacrificial example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the point that we've been kind of Emphasizing over and over again here. So his whole modus operandi around this principle of freedom is to point them to the genuine, truest nature, essential nature of freedom, which is the freedom to live not as you want, but as you ought The freedom to live in such a way that you are sacrificing for the sake of others and for the sake of the kingdom of God and the message of the gospel. That's true freedom. Am I not an apostle, he goes on to say? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So we see here the Apostle Paul beginning to point to his apostolic title, his apostolic designation. It is a statement about his message of the gospel that he was appointed, chosen and appointed to bring to the people of Corinth. And he provides sort of the, the character or the qualification, one of the qualifications of his apostleship, that, that he has actually seen Jesus our Lord. So in other words, his message of the gospel and what he brought to them was what he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who, by the way, appeared to him and commissioned and called him directly. He even refers to this in this explicit terms throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and going forward from there. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, he starts his salutation by saying, Paul. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then verse 17 For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I was sent by Christ Himself. And then the familiar passage in chapter 15. You want to turn there? Can. Such a great summary of Paul's ministry among them and his calling, his relationship to the other apostles. Starting in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within, that is with me. This is an incredible picture of the Apostle Paul identifying the nature and essence of his apostolic role. It, it, it's a fascinating ...thought process to, to consider in light of misconceptions and misappropriations of things like freedom and autonomy and even authority. Remember the, name, the, the word right has in its definition this idea of having authority for something. So, so the Apostle Paul, in this statement about his apostleship, is indeed making a statement about his authority in the gospel. His authority that was invested to him by Christ himself. But notice what I love about what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that there is a a general reluctance to exert that authority in explicit ways. And this is the essence of the testimony that he's bringing to them in this particular chapter in chapter 9. Even in the context of the genuine place of spiritual authority, it is not to be characterized by joyful, even proud exhibition of that authority, as rightful as it might be. So this is a great example of how we are to understand and test true spiritual leaders, true spiritual authority. If you have people in quote-unquote positions of spiritual authority, who are routinely reminding you of their position of spiritual authority, and who are consistently trying to exert that authority onto you by virtue of their position of spiritual authority, flags and bells and whistles ought to be going up all over the place. The Apostle Paul gives us a great example, even in the context of this entire study of of his willingness to surrender his rights, that the true spiritual leader, even the rarest of spiritual leaders, the apostles, called and commissioned by Christ to take the new covenant saving message of the gospel to be spread around the entire world to the establishment of his people, the church, to the advancement of his kingdom work, Those people are the elite, if you will. What we're going to talk about probably next time is that there's no others like them. And there never will be any others like them. And he was named among them. And yet notice his reticence about exerting such a status. His, His hesitation to even call that authority out with any kind of definitiveness or explicitness. What's happening here in Corinth is what can often happen in the life of the church. Many, many churches, this happens over and over and over again, is that submission to authority is willfully given to those who possess external qualities that people find attractive. And compelling. And people are willing to follow that leadership down all kinds of crazy roads. You get into the extremist kinds of contours of this, particularly in this new apostolic movement that's been going on for a few decades now, the list of abuses and wickedness. That trails behind many, many, many of these people who have elevated themselves to these positions of spiritual authority, calling themselves new apostles. The, the string of devastation and destruction and wickedness is—it's a long trail behind them. Example after example after example. But the apostle Paul here, there's a there's a there's a hesitation here, and in verse and chapter fifteen. He's last of all as one untimely born. He appeared to me, the least of all the apostles, he says. Unworthy to be called an apostle because of my sin, my persecution of the church. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's it. It's just by the grace of God. It's interesting to think about this in light of our church and leadership in our church. I can tell you I've been in many, 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 many leadership meetings in which there was a, a grueling laboring over hard decisions that have to be made that require an exertion of spiritual authority. There's, there's, a, there's a hesitancy that's just built into it if it's genuine And what these Corinthians were sort of guilty of is a lording over a prideful arrogance in their freedom and their ability to sort of exercise this authority that they have now in Christ to walk in these ways of partaking of these things freely without any kind of sin being attached to them, that the Apostle Paul would be like, that's not freedom and that's not authority and that's not leadership. That's not genuine spiritual authority and genuine spiritual leadership. And then he points to his work among them, and we've kind of alluded to this previously. He says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Are you not my my handiwork, my, my masterpiece, my, my work of accomplishment in the Lord? He's calling them to recount the very truth that their salvation was brought to them by the instrument of His apostleship, of His instrumentation, of bringing the message of the gospel to them. And what's taking place in Corinth, as we've talked about previously, is that they continue to attach value to things that don't matter. They tend to attach authority or prestige to things that are not really authoritative or prestigious in the eternal sense of things. You recall... Going back to even the very opening chapter, the divisions that occurred in life in Corinth were sourced in the fact that they had attached their affinity or their affection to various leaders and they were being loyal to the teaching or to the association of these leaders. I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Paul, I am of Christ. That was the the slogans, if you will, of their, their factious thinking and their factious living. And they were they were really critical of the Apostle Paul because when he came to them, he said, I didn't come in, in mastery of speech. I wasn't this master orator. I didn't speak with all of this gravitas and this you know, eloquence. I, I wasn't able to do that. In fact, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But I did that because I wanted whatever happened there to be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And indeed, what happened in Corinth the Spirit's power was made manifest such that your darkened, dead eyes were opened to see the truth of the gospel and you were given life in Christ such that he describes them, even in chapter 1, as those who have been given many gifts. They were gifted in many ways. And yet what they were aligning themselves with or bending themselves to were were the exhibition of these gifts, the the exhibition of these freedoms that would point to them and what they've achieved and what they've accomplished. So the Apostle Paul is, in in one sense, calling them to consider the question about his freedoms, the nature of his authority, his calling, his being chosen and sent by Christ, and the actual proof that they represent in real time of his effectiveness as a sent one of Christ, as a, as a herald of the gospel message. To take note of these things and to recognize that insofar as you're claiming your rights, you're not representing freedom at all. You're not representing true liberty at all. You're not representing true authority at all. He'll go on to speak of this in more detail. We'll look at it more fully as we see how he moves in a direction toward not, not claiming these rights for himself. Even rights of sustenance on behalf of the church. Let's close in prayer.